Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome, everybody, to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. I am happy to uh, say hello to my co-hosts here, Elliot Turner and Phil Ordway, as well as a very special guest we have on the pod uh, today, David Barr, Chief Executive Officer as well as Portfolio Manager at Pender Fund Capital Management based in Vancouver, Canada. And I'm sure Dave is uh, familiar to many of our listeners. He has been a, a great contributor to the value investing community and the MOI global community. Uh, I've learned a ton from Dave um, and uh, so really look forward to this conversation. I think I think there's a, a, a ton we can all learn and uh, get Dave's perspective uh, on. So actually, I'll throw it over to Elliot uh, to get us uh, kicked off. All right, great. So uh, really excited to have you on, Dave. This has uh, you know, been been really nice. We got to meet in person in Lattice Work about a year and a half ago. God, it feels like a lifetime ago. I wish, um, you know, I'm looking forward to the next time we could hang out and talk. I, I really enjoyed your presentation there where you spoke about, you know, private equity style investing in public markets. And you were talking about the opportunity set, about how you have like this setup where there's some better valuations in public markets to kind of take that private mindset. Um, but I was just wondering, you know, a lot's happened since then, obviously. Um, and how do you think about the environment today uh, where private seemed expensive uh, before relative to public, but maybe the pendulum swung? So maybe we'll dive in with that and see where this goes. Yeah, thanks, Elliot. And I, I'm looking forward to meeting again in person as well. It's, uh, it's, it's been too long. The, you know, the, the, the private world, it's, I mean, it's just, it's changed quite dramatically in, you know, just in the 18 months since I gave that presentation. And, you know, public markets are great because when you, when you take a common sense business approach to looking at companies, um, you can kind of figure out what they're worth on a private market basis. And, you know, Mr. Market does his things and some days he lets you buy that company really cheap. Other days it's pretty expensive. The setup we had seen for quite a while was, We'd heard this narrative around, you know, stay public, stay private longer, and there was a ton of growth capital financing a lot of these companies, and they're really, you know, the the, the narrative was don't be public. You got reporting requirements. Shareholders aren't long term thinking. And you got all the hassles with being public, and you know what we've seen in the past twelve months is a complete reversal in this, and the the narrative around it has changed. And the valuations have changed too. And you know, like a lot of that, um, you know, we, we kind of see in participation with retail investors in the market, uh, the proliferation of SPACs in the market. So there's just there's a there's a ton of capital out there right now. And the the later stage private investors are now saying, well, maybe we shouldn't stay private. Maybe we should take advantage of this valuation disconnect um, where we can now get a way better valuation in the public markets and take our companies public. It's uh, so it's it's you know if you're in, if you're in a later stage private portfolio right now, it's it's pretty opportunistic. 
Yeah, you know, and to bring it to one of your blog posts that I really loved, you wrote about uh, the 80s Oilers versus Jacques Lemaire, right? <laughs> really hitting home with me on the hockey topic. Well, as an Oilers the- fan, you must equally hate Jacques Lemaire. I was going to say, you had to go with the Oilers who kind of dethroned my Islanders and then Jacques Lemaire who kind of, I don't know, just put the kibosh on any offense my team could have for a decade. <laughs> um, but, you know, this idea of, playing offense as your weapon versus defense and situational awareness, knowing when to switch from one to the other. So how do you think about that in light of, you know, the environment's come quite, quite far since, since July when you wrote that even. So how do you think about that today? Yeah. Yeah. It was funny. I mean, I remember in July, people were saying, you know, why would you want to own small cap stocks? Because small caps have done so poor relative to large caps for so long. Um, And now that we've seen, you know, a rally in small caps, people are saying, why would I want to own small cap? You know, when we're assessing the landscape, what we're we're looking at, you know, primarily at, the, at company specific level. So, we ask ourselves, you know, what's the opportunity set like? Are are the companies we look at are they cheap on a private market value? Are they cheap on a discounted cash flow basis? Are they cheap on, you know, a, a relative basis to what their peers are trading at? And that will that will tell us how aggressive we should be on an individual investment. And then you you layer that into the entire landscape on how many of these opportunities you see that are high conviction. And when we see that, we are more aggressive, fully invested. Um, you know, letting letting Gretzky carry the day for us. <laughs> the the third level to it is then you kind of you look out there at the the macro landscape, and I never want to be called a macro investor. Um, but I mean, when I when I wrote that piece last summer, you know, there was a lot less certainty around uh, a vaccine. Um, you know, a lot of uncertainty on how certain industries were going to get through the, the the shutdowns and whatnot. So when you kind of look at it from a probabilistic perspective, um, I, I think we were you know last summer we were in this range where you know, you kind of had 68% of your potential outcomes were kind of normalized and things would be okay. Um, but you had two very significant tail events. I mean, you had you had a big tail, a big tail event that, you know, vaccines aren't going to work and this virus mutated, really bad things could have happened globally. The other side is you had this these very positive tail events where, you know, maybe the world was going to be okay and you know, there was companies that were going to excel and catch massive tailwinds out of this. And, you know, hindsight capital always nails these ones and says, well, you know, the tail risk you really had to watch out for was, um, you know, the, the offensive side and the, the positive outcomes. So that's kind of the third layer of what we're looking at. And I think we're still, you know, we're still in a similar situation to where we were last summer, where, you know, there's a, a pretty, you know, there's there's a wide range of outcomes, but we still have a lot of a lot of tail risk, both positive and negative. So when we're looking at our portfolios, you know, positioning on both sides of that coin, and it's, you know, it's this is way more art than science at this point. Um, but you know, being being conscious of both sides of of how they can impact your portfolios. Yeah, no, those are a lot of interesting points. You know, one of the things I think about right now and that I struggle with, uh, maybe all of us could chime in a little bit too, is this idea that, you know, I feel like right now where we stand, we have a much greater degree of comfort that the vaccine works, that things are going to go 
farther towards normal with the biggest question being when exactly, you know, normalcy resumes. But, but you know, it's no longer this like big if question that's really far out in the future. It's like, you know, within a year, we're probably going to get some degree of uh, norm, call it new normal uh, going on again. Um, but, you know, so obviously that means the economy goes from what was deep recession last year, uh, Q2 in particular, to, you know, we're going to put up some really gaudy GDP growth numbers. And so, you know, in theory, we're early cycle, the beginnings of recovery, but equity markets are not there. So, you know, equity markets are quite more mature in, in their cycle terms. Um, so how do you, how do you like reconcile the two in that sense? Uh, great, great question, Elliot. It, you know, it's, when we have situations like this, you, we really have to tie it back to the individual companies we're looking at and making sure, you know, from a valuation perspective and a business risk perspective, we, we feel comfortable continuing to own it. I mean, it's, we, we do have those tail events out there still. Um, so we have to be aware of it. So from a portfolio perspective, just being a bit more cautious, um, being five to 10% of the portfolio in kind of shorter duration, special fits type investments, um, where if volatility does rear its head quickly, um, we, we've got a bit of a buffer, but we've also got the opportunity to go in and, and, and buy things when they're, when they're on sale. But, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging to manage a portfolio with that, that kind of, with the tail risk for front and center in, in your analysis. And then, you know, like when, when we kind of look at the, the evolutionists, I mean, a couple of things we've really focused on, I mean, my, my partner, Felix, you know, end of March, um, you know, comes in, he's like, we got to go, we have to get long tech, um, you know, demand, demand has totally changed. Cash flow has been pulled forward. Um, like we've all kind of shared articles that talked about that in, in March, April and Felix nailed that for us. Um, but you kind of, when the, the second derivative, what's, what's happening next. And that's where, you know, we're not invested yet, but we're certainly, we're looking at airlines, travel related stocks, because, you know, every time I have a, a zoom call with a friend, um, I mean, one of the things we always talk about is where's the first place you're traveling when, when this is all over. And, I mean, I think there's there there is going to be a massive tailwind in uh, consumer spending in very specific parts of the market or, or, or in industries where people get to be social again. Because I, I love having this online call with you guys. I'd way rather do it in person. <laughs> Amen to that. <laughs> one thing I'm curious, Dave. This is Philip, by the way. One thing I'm curious about too is going back. I, I love the comments on your process, and I think I probably share a lot of similarities in that process. But as you're looking around, you know, whether it's today in a somewhat unique situation or or more generally, and you're looking at the whole business and 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 looking at valuing the whole business. And you mentioned comparing it to peers and looking at it outright. Do you also take the view as if you owned it outright? And then how do you come up with, you know, any sort of numbers, whether it's a point estimate or a range? Are you using um, kind of an absolute hurdle rate and opportunity cost-driven approach? How do you go about doing it? Yeah, good, good question. So I mean, I think we're all probably fairly aligned with this. We're, we're looking at absolute returns, so we have an absolute hurdle rate. Um, and yeah, when we when we look at the business, it's very much, you know, how, what, what do we think this business is worth on block? And, you know, that, that really, that drives our analysis. And 
because when you know when periods like March happen, um, and I, I had, we, we had a great conversation on our weekly investment team meeting yesterday, and I, I asked everybody, you know, what company in our portfolio that you follow right now, if it was down fifty percent next month, would you be like mad at yourself that we hadn't trimmed? And I was trying, to, I was asking the question, kind of inverting trying to figure out which names everybody had the highest conviction in or lowest conviction in. Um, And, uh, you know, I I find that just that level of conviction really ties into understanding the business and, and what it's worth to, uh, to a buyer. I think when you're, when we're looking at, you know, we're we're in the public markets. So Mr. Market's always doing, having his fun and games with us. It's that's, that's why we also overlay it with, you know, what are the, where are the peers trading um, and, you know, what, what do we think a, a financial buyer would pay for it? Um, and those types of things. Cause you know, there's, there's, there's more than one way to make money in the stock market. So if you can kind of layer in two or three, um, ways where you're the, the, the company you're looking at is undervalued, it increases your probability of that, that business going up. Yeah, absolutely. Dave, I'm curious if you could uh, expand a little bit on this notion of a positive tail risk. I, I understand downside a tail risk, but what do you mean by positive? Well, the I mean, the majority of returns in the stock market are from you know a very small group of comp- companies, and you know to to actually capture the returns, you have to be invested, and you know there's we. we a lot of times you never know when these, these positive uh, returns are going to come in the market. I mean, it's, you kind of look at, you know, the, the micro cap, small cap market. I mean, Q4 was massive. And if you'd sat out Q4, um, the, you know, you're, you basically, you you missed out on a lot of the advantage of being invested in the small cap sector um, over the past three years, because the returns were all in, in Q4. I think, I think I listened to your podcast last week. I think you guys were talking about uh, Bill Brewster's tweet about um, it's uh, it's not timing in the market; it's time in the market. Um, and I think that really, you know, that actually captures the positive tail risk because you kind of when there's a lot of uncertainty out there in the market, um, you know, the probability of a positive tail event um, and having these big rallies, um, there's there's a higher probability of it. Uh, on the flip side, there's also a higher probability of, you know, uh, negative tail negative tail risks and, you know, having the volatility on the downside. And I just, I think in this market environment, yeah, because I think there's a heightened probability of both positive and negative tail risks, it makes managing portfolios super interesting. Yeah, that's a really interesting point about the heightened probability of positive and negative tail risks, which I guess explains why the VIX is kind of persistently high even though markets are kind of going up and up since uh, the end of the summer. But then, you know, thinking about some of these specific like hotel travel related recovery plays, it's like, I want to get constructed, uh, constructive on them too. Then I'll type up something like Hilton and see that the stocks, you know, making all time highs and, you know, it's hard to, I, I, I feel your enthusiasm. I'm like, yeah, I can't wait to travel. We're all thinking about our lists. I remember in the summer on the Pinterest earnings call, they're like, actually, the travel vertical is getting a lot of action because there's so many people starting kind of the top of funnel exploration of where they want to go, what they want to do. Um, but like, 
you know, so are you thinking about, you, you said airlines, but are you thinking about airlines and hotels? Or are you also like going one step beyond that? Like what people are going to need to kind of fulfill their, their missions on travel? Yeah. And we kind of, we, we, we dig into the weeds a bit. So, I mean, I think the, the airlines and hotel stocks are generally you know, kind of large cap and we're, you know, we're looking a bit more into the weeds and it'd be more smaller airlines if we were in, in that space. Um, but, you know, trying to, uh, the, the, the tough part is like the, the obvious stuff always moves first. And we, we, we'd like to have a couple more data points that, you know, things are going the way we think they are before we deploy. And I think an example of that would be, you know, in, in the, in the spring when, you know, we saw kind of Google and a bunch of the, uh, the 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 large uh, tech companies rallied pretty quickly, and we focused more our time and energy into kind of the stitch fixes and Zillows, and you know Felix calls it the zips, um, but that second tier where you kind of got the data on how business or consumer behaviors changed, but it you know you're you're able to kind of get into that laggard company, so you can you can kind of get a, a a bit more of the uh, the joyride. Yeah, very interesting. You guys really nailed the stitch fixes and Zillow's of the world. How, how do you how do you think about those now? I mean, I mean, how quick are you to turn something over and you know try to find the next one? Or you know, I'm, I'm sure at the time you're like, yeah, I'm underwriting to uh, something that I want to own for the next five years. But then suddenly, you know, you get five years of return that fast. How, <laughs> how do you process that? Yeah, uh, I mean, that's a great question. You you must have been listening in on like our uh, investment team meetings for the past. <laughs> The, the uh, I mean, this is such a it, an interesting topic because it just it resonates. You know, we, we identify as value investors, which you know sometimes you don't want to say that because people think automatically assume you're deep value. And you know, we were able to buy these companies at very attractive prices in March and, and April. Um, but now, obviously, you know, some of these things are up five, six, seven, eight times, and you know our our, our process around selling trimming, and this this ties into Hundred Baggers, which is just a great book, and you know, with Thomas Phelps and then uh, Chris Mayer updated it. But when you're when you got the business fundamentals working for you, um, and the company is still growing its intrinsic value and whatever that proxy may be, EPS, um, cash flow, EBITDA, whatever, however you're you're monitoring the business. Um, you, you don't want like you you want to hold on, and so when business quality is high, which it is in the case of these companies, um, and valuation, you know, is still it's it's high, but you know, then we then we take a second look at it, and I mean, it's funny I was, I was teasing Felix about becoming more of a, a venture capitalist because you know what we're looking now is you know when you look at a Zillow or a Stitch Fix, I mean, could these companies be four X in size ten years from now? And the answer is yes, they could be. And so, you know, that gives us kind of a 15% IRR over the next decade, which um, there's obviously a heightened level of risk associated with that. But, you know, given the execution and the optionality and the positive business fundamentals and the the positive feedback loops, which occur when businesses are doing well, um, we're quite happy to hold these things. Um, you know, I, I, I obviously do trim them. Um, they're nowhere near the weight they were, but they, they are in the portfolio. But 
if we, you know, when the, when the company is growing and we can, we have that vision that, the, you know, it could be because the market is so big and management's done a great job executing in the past. Um, we're quite happy to hold, but it's, it, I, this is where we're talking about a lot more art than science right now. That's for sure. So Stitch Fix is an interesting one. I looked at that last year too and was so brilliant that I passed on it. But um, one thing that jumped out to me was I don't think I ever got past, you know, the 50th percentile in my knowledge or understanding of it. But one thing that did jump out was there was a pretty high short interest for a while there. Did you uh, evaluate that? Did you talk to people who were short it? Um, you know, I think it's probably, this gets to a different you know, pet peeve of mine is that I think it's probably okay to declare victory in that debate now, but maybe not. But anyway, I, I just wonder how much you take that into consideration, um, particularly now that, you know, we have some hindsight to help us evaluate what they were, what anyone who was short six or 12 months ago was thinking and, and how the facts have evolved to to disprove or, or support that thesis and how much that impacts your thinking as you're buying something, holding something, adding, trimming, all that good stuff. Yeah, I so I mean, I mean, Zillow was a similar situation where there's uh, a lot of sh- uh, public shorts on that as well, and I think you know what what's interesting is when there's there's a large short interest and but you've also got like an an equally loud uh, bull crowd on it. I mean, these these stocks become battleground stocks, and you know, battleground stocks are are incredibly volatile. Um, there's really good reasons why, you know, the, the business might not be worth what people think it is, but there's, there's a lot of, uh, you know, alternative arguments where it could be worth a lot more. And I think when you, when, when we were looking at the short thesis on a lot of, uh, on some of these names, um, you know, what we saw was people were taking more of a fundamental value investor type approach. Um, and, you know, that's, that's great. Um, you know, at the end of the day, a business is the future value of its cash flows. Um, but you know, has have have technology companies changed that discussion a little bit? And I think yes, some of them have. Um, but it doesn't mean they can't be incredibly polarizing. I mean, there was. I mean, yes, we love look, going back and looking at you know both Amazon and Netflix, and you know th- those were you know some incredibly high profile shorts on those stocks and large short interest at various points of time. Um, and I think, you know, it's, we, the, you can definitely do victory laps on your Amazon and Netflix longs now. Um, the, uh, so, but having these battleground stocks and these large short interests, I mean, you, you, you do need to have your eyes open because, you know, the, a lot of these short investors are, you know, in, you know smarter than I am, that's for sure. And they do an incredible, deep, deep dive on these companies. And so they do uncover a lot of, you know, very insightful information. Um, but if sometimes you can have, uh, you know, a, a different time frame horizon um, or a different understanding of a business where, you know, the way other people might be looking at it may not apply now. Um, but I, it's, it's actually that short interest, which actually creates the more compelling opportunity. Interesting. So suffice it to say, you're more than happy to take the other side if you just disagree on the merits of the argument. Then is that is that fair? Absolutely. And it's but but eyes wide open. Sorry. One other thing that that jumped out from your comments that I thought was really interesting was you said obviously 
you know, the, the value of the business is the present value of its future cash flows, which I hope we could all agree on, even in this day and age, even though that does seem to be, uh, you know, somewhat uh, lost in the ether. But you said technology companies have changed the, uh, the discussion or the framework a bit there. I don't want to put words in your mouth. So I was curious to, if you could expand on that, because it's a fascinating topic for me. Yeah, it's so I mean, when we look at companies kind of over the last 50 years, I mean, there, I take a, an HVAC company. And, you know, it's an HVAC company, one starts up in Pittsburgh, one starts up in Seattle. And you know, the best company starts to dominate that market. And then they slowly expand out across uh, the US and grab grab market share. And you can build like, you know, 20 great HVAC companies, 50 great HVAC companies, the, the economics around delivering technology online is, is a lot different. And, you know, so it, it creates much more winner-take-all dynamics. So, you know, if you're not kind of in the top three, you're, you're probably a little bit too late to the party. Um, there's obviously exceptions to, to every rule here. Um, so the, the, the economics are, 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 are quite different. And what that drives is it actually drives a much heavier reinvestment rate. And, you know, one of the, like, uh, like everybody kind of in, uh, in our NMOI global communities, you know, follows Constellation and Mark Leonard and, you know, probably the, the most insightful, or one of them, I've got many insightful um, observations, but, you know, the, the average life of uh, a vertical software contract, I mean, once, once companies install software they're going to keep using that for about 18 years or or even longer um people rarely switch off these and so what that actually did is it changed you know we it, it changed the the predictability of the revenue stream of of technology companies because you know and we a lot of us you know when we first when you look at hardware companies where it's more product based and you, know, you don't have that stickiness and predictability of revenue. The and the second aspect of it is 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 the margin profile. And you know when you when you when you build a great technology company, um, you know you can you can start particularly in software space. You can be driving thirty to fifty percent incremental free cash flow margins. The challenge is is that incremental free cash flow, rightfully so, is generally heavily reinvested in the business. Um, so that it, uh, you know, basically you're, you're seeing net income zero. And so how do you actually back out the cash flow on that? And, you know, like there, there, there's some people that will just say they haven't proven they can make a profit. So I'm not going to do any work on it. Um, there's other people that will take really uh, aggressive estimates and say every technology company's software company is the same and can drive 50%, uh, free cash flow margins that, the truth generally somewhere in the middle. And I think that's where a lot of the, the really exciting opportunities uh, in, in technology and software are today. It's, it's trying to figure out the, the difference um, on, on what that end margin is. So suffice it to say then, we, we would agree, or if you don't, let me know, but we would agree then that a good company that's utilizing a software model or a, is a broadly defined technology company that's winning and, and having a lot of success is just occasionally worth a lot more than we're used to assuming based on historical shortcuts that are proxies for the valuation process. Was that, that well said or would you disagree? 
I, I totally agree. Okay. So, I mean, the one thing then that I'm, I'm curious about to follow up, it sounds like you probably know uh, more individual business models and examples than I might, but how many wolves in sheep clothing in sheep's clothing do you think are out there then? Because I'm with you. Everybody loves to point to the examples of Amazon and Netflix that had relatively unimpressive gap earnings for a long, long time. They also happen to be led by once in a generation genius CEOs that had unbelievable skills across a whole range of areas, right? Everything from operating the business to you know, deploying capital and hiring people and leading individuals and dealing with regulatory issues and just everything you could want on a wish list for a great CEO. So, I, and then I just look around today and, and because they were so successful and, and it's not just them, there's, you know, a good list of them. But like you said, it's a relatively barbell world out there where these winners on one end are so extreme that they get all the attention. But then you know, by definition, the other end of that barbell is a lot of losers. And I just see a lot of companies today that are kind of masquerading under that guise of, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. We're losing a lot of money right now. But trust me, like the 10 and 20 year payoff is going to be really super awesome. And again, if you believe that the only possible way for a business to be worth anything is is to eventually have some sort of value that manifests itself in cash, that math just gets really, really difficult. I mean, I guess more simply said, there are just not going to be that many Amazon and Netflix style successes out there, right? <laughs> well, it's too bad there isn't because it would make our jobs a lot easier, right? <laughs> For sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is just a great, great question, Phil. And yeah, it's there's there's a lot of companies you need to filter through. And I think what's what's challenging is we've had you know Bezos write such great shareholder letters and and Mark Leonard write great letter letters. And so there's this blueprint um, that you know a, a more you know a more promotional CEO can say, well, I know how to talk to these investors and use the right metrics and hit all the right tones so that we can we can keep this party going. Um, so it's you know there's, there's a, there are there's a lot of wolves out there and they know exactly how to present the information. Um, which then makes it incredibly challenging from us as analysts trying to, to decipher it and figure out, you know, what is that true uh, free cash flow generating ability um, at the end of the day? And I mean, that's, you know, that's where it's, there, there's no shortcuts on that. It's, you know, it's, it, it's trying to figure it out to the best of your ability. And um, just if you get it right more often than you get it wrong, um, the return should be okay. Yeah, I'd love to take a cut at that one too, because I think, you know, that's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, and, you know, where where's the line drawn uh, between some of these companies that can actually kind of cross the, cross the bridge and generate really lush profitability versus those that are going to run into problems? And I kind of break it down into two kinds of companies that will run into problems in this sense. One is the kind of company who claims they have, and I'm talking about on the problem side of the, the bucket, um, the kind of companies who claim that they have a really large TAM, but don't acknowledge that at some point their TAM converges with one, two, or three other competitors. And yet they're building like an operating infrastructure to, as if they're going to capture a really meaningful portion of that when it's just not going to be possible. So 
you know, it's going to be really hard for that company to, to get it right um, on when to scale down and actually make money. The other is one that has um, terrible unit economics from the start, right? There's a, there's a difference between having good and bad unit economics and being unprofitable. Um, and I've encountered this, you know, uh, kind of recently spoken about my involvement in Naked Wines. And the UK investor base is pretty much uh, diametrically opposed to the US investor base in terms of uh, appreciating the Amazon and Netflix model of zero gap profitability. Like they just don't like it there. Uh, but U.S. investors do like it. And, you know, you can break down a company like this and be like, oh, yeah. So on a customer level and on a per shipment level, the unit economics are positive. But then you contrast it with something like Fubo TV, where it's like they're actually losing money on a gross basis on each and every subscriber. So, you know, you say what happens if they, you know, 5x their subscribers they are not actually going to be making more money. They're going to lose 5x as much money. <laughs> um and so, you know, I think I think that's where you draw the line. Now, there are some companies who, with scale, their unit economics improve. And there's an argument with the Fubos of the world, which is they have two levers to pull. One is they're going to have more leverage over their suppliers, right? They're really wholesale transfer pricing of content. Uh, they're buying the content and selling it to customers. So if they have more customers, they have more leverage so they could improve their margins. And two is they could add on ancillary offerings, Um and it's like, okay, maybe you believe that, but that's not the kind of risk. I draw my line at taking that kind of risk. You know, I want to make sure I understand the unit economics and, and I'm betting on those to scale in contrast of growing into some degree of profitability uh, on, on a unit basis. Great point, Elliot. I mean, understanding unit economics is the key to investing in any of these. The, if there's, I mean, you might be able to make money investing in companies with negative net unit economics. Um, I'm not going to try. I'll, I'll, I'll leave that to somebody else. Um, I, another aspect you kind of hinted at a bit there was also was, was pricing power and the ability to actually increase prices over time. And I remember like, the same lattice work I gave my presentation, Sean from Ensemble gave uh, the uh, Netflix presentation talking about the, the latent, uh, the, the pricing power Netflix would have and kind of, does a survey in the room. If Netflix charged two dollars more, would anybody cancel? And nobody put up their hand. Um, and have like you know having I, that that's actually a, one of the areas I have a harder time understanding. I can focus a bit more on the cost side in the UK, unit economics um, and the margin profile. Um, having that pricing power is is a wonderful thing, and it's the other side of the coin there too. Yeah, I've been working on a company right now where I'm really struggling because the pricing power is so damn good and unappreciated. I was talking to one of their customers and he's like, yeah, I've been paying $300 forever. Um, and I was like, okay, well, so you know, when was the last time they raised prices? And he goes to look and he's like, actually, I've been paying $500 for the last three years. <laughs> and it's like, wow, <laughs> if the person didn't even know that the price was up 80% over the last you know three years, that's some real pricing power and they could go pretty far, but like no analyst is really writing in pricing uplift and the company, you know, for, I think for good reason, doesn't talk about flexing their muscle on that front yet. Um, but it's a real hard one to wrap my head around, you know, like how do you underwrite to it? How do you, how do you think about that? Um, Netflix is a, is a great example. Uh, I think Sean Standard Stockton was like pretty early in saying like, you know, what's the, what's the true price of Netflix and what does the margin look like? Uh, but you know, how, how do you gain conviction around working behind that? That's one of the harder ones for me. Me too. That's why I still kick myself. I didn't buy Netflix twice. 
right? And then I guess one kind of like broader question, and and this is something I was in a debate with a group last night on a Zoom where we like kind of biweekly talk about like what's going on in markets and how we're thinking. And the question is like, how much of what we're talking about right now, what we think we've really learned in recent times is a function of where we are in the cycle and what has been reinforced by today's cycle that won't necessarily be true going forward. And there was a great article, blog post out today about how like, Bruce Berkowitz was the all-star of the last cycle and he's not this cycle because he didn't really have anything other than a recipe that was very regime dependent. So like, how do you think about that? You know, situational awareness is one of the concepts we started with. So how do you think about, you know, a situational awareness that might indicate maybe the regime's changing and we should be thinking about some things a little differently? Uh, I'm really grappling with that. Yeah, I'd like to hear about this too, because it's something I've been thinking about a lot and, and maybe Dave will have a better answer because I don't. I mean, I I was just starting to read that Bruce Berkowitz article myself and and you know, people made the same allegations against Bill Miller, even though he's proven to be quite adaptable. Um, and, and certainly, you know, all the great investors are gonna have to pivot their tactics every five, 10, 15 years or so. And it does occur to me that there's a whole generation of people that have gotten exceptional results pursuing one very narrow playbook for the last several years now. And that just, I mean, it can last longer than we all think it will, but it certainly can't last forever. So um, it just seems like there's a lot of hidden landmines out there in that regard. Yeah. And beginning and endpoint sensitivity create uh, the appearance of winners and losers on a, on a year to year basis. And I, yeah, I, I'm I'm such a contrarian. I, you know, I'm, we're sitting here, and you know, Compound Town is celebrating um, the end of value investing right now. All right, and people are, you know, we, we're, when everyone starts talking about it's different this time and new business models and whatnot, and, which I was just doing, and I'm fully, you know, aware of my mental gymnastics here. Um, but when when we, when we get periods of time like this where one style and subset is is really dominating and i mean kind of you look at all these people posting their portfolios and what their great returns have been over the last three years and i mean they're the portfolios all resonate with one another and and look alike it's you know how how the regime changes i mean Gosh, your your guys' guess is as good as mine, um, but I, yeah, we are we are at this one point in time where this one style is working incredibly well. Um, I think, you know, if 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 you kind of extrapolate it back, though, the the returns in the market are always driven over the long term by the economics of the business, and there's a few businesses which which really drive the returns of the market over the long term, and. You know, you kind of look at some of those businesses that have been doing it. I mean, they're not they're not in nosebleed territory and valuation by any stretch of the imagination. And you know, I, there's there's other people out there that will say a lot of these things are still screaming by. So, you know, is is there a reversal on this style imminent? Um, maybe, um, but I think there's still, you know, over the long term, you're not going to be you're not going to be too disappointed as long as you you know, kind of pulling it back to Elliot's point, if you get the unit economics right and fill to your point, if, if the free cash flow generation does, you know, it is there and continues to increase, you're, you're going you're gonna to do okay. 
Right. You might not have the experience you had in the last three years, but you're going to do okay. Well, I do love that you mentioned Bill Miller there, because one of the interesting things when you look at his portfolio, it's like not balls to the wall tech, right? I mean, he's got some things that are a little bit everywhere. And um, I, I do think that's something that there's something to be said about how that's helped him uh, kind of perform and succeed across oh, sure. multiple regimes. Yeah, because he's never he's never stopped learning, right? He's never actively. I mean, I don't know him personally, but he's never shut off his mind and said, oh, "I I just got filthy rich buying tech companies at twenty times sales and selling them at forty times sales, and that's all I'm going to do for the rest of my life." Right? I mean, he's very actively and intentionally curious and trying to learn. So even though he made some horrendous mistakes, as you would admit, you know, leading up into the financial crisis, where for ten years, right? I mean, he had done nothing. Well, not nothing, but he had done a lot of buying levered financial companies and he was buying countrywide the whole way down. And, you know, he learned from that mistake and he moved on and got better from it. And that's what everybody has to do. And I'm I'm here to make an unprovable forecast that there are all sorts of people who are going to be feeling a whole lot like Bill Miller at some point in the next few years. And whether or not they pivot and learn from it and get better in the future is going to be the key test. Yeah, right. That's an interesting question. I mean, Bill Miller is the kind of guy he's he's on the board of or was on the board of the Santa Fe Institute. Right. Uh, I got to meet him through that once, and he's like the person who sits in the front and is just like eagerly taking notes and learning everything. And to be able to do that at his age, right? You know, that's that takes a unique personality and a unique drive. Right. Um, and I don't think most people have. I mean, not only do not people most people not have that drive, but most people can't wrap their brain around the notion that I was just dramatically right. And that's the most vulnerable point. And that I need to tear down everything I just learned and move on. Right. I mean, it's like learning how to play, you know, golf with one swing that gets you to a certain level. And then you have to stop and completely learn an entirely new swing. If you really want to take it to the next level and keep getting better and keep winning. And and most people just can't do that. It's really hard. Totally. There, there, I, there's so many biases at play there where, when you're right, um, you you internalize it because you're smart and you deserve it. And when you're wrong, it's it's bad luck. And so it it is really hard to you know keep you know keep on changing a, a winning game, right? It's uh, you know it takes that lifelong passion for learning to really drive that. Uh, but it also takes the humility to you know you, you need to recognize that um, you know luck got you there and it's not going to carry you through for the next cycle necessarily. One thing, uh, Dave, that I, that I struggle with a little bit and, and it kind of, uh, dovetails also with something Elliot spoke about, uh, some time ago, which is those overlapping TAMs where different companies put up these huge TAMs, uh, justifies their valuations, the investment in the business and so forth. It's something that I think is kind of similar to that is just if you, take all the valuations in the market right now for companies that are going to be disruptors, but then also for the tech giants, and you add what's happening in the venture space, to me, um, all those valuations just do not compute. Now, you can make you know individual cases uh, very strong, why company XYZ is going to do it extremely well. But when you aggregate it all up... Um, I have a hard time believing that you know Apple, Google, Facebook, um, and and those Microsoft, the giants, can keep delivering reasonable growth um, 
when you got uh, the venture space so active funding, maybe not companies that are going to go head to head against these uh, giants with with moats, but that are going to nibble at the edges. And I feel like you know, people don't really aggregate things up. And given your experience, both in in the venture space as well as in public markets, I'm wondering, kind of, how do you how do you think about you know all the money going into the venture space and the fact that venture capitalists are much more than they used to be in the past? I mean, I think the Andreessen Horowitz model of having best practice operational support for these startups uh, has really um, won out, and so. You know, it's not just a founder who has to figure out a ton of things. They get like real teams behind them on pretty much on day one that know how to execute on marketing, on on you know the sales and so forth. And and then with the valuations of companies in the public markets, I mean, someone's going to have to be disappointed, right? Well, absolutely, and and that's that's the beauty of the market because there's 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 different contingencies thinking the world is going to uh, evolve in different ways. Um, you know, venture capitalists are, you know, buying into new, 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 new companies who say they can, you know, either create a new market or build a better, or build a better mousetrap. And um, that can, in the earlier stages, that can justify evaluation. And then over time, reality can set in and it may, might be proven right or proven wrong. And then there is, there's obviously, you know, the, the 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 competitive dynamics at play, and where you know the competition kicks in, TAMs start to overlap, um, and then you know they get second order effects on how does that impact the valuation of the incumbent? Um, how does it infect impact the valuation of the uh, of the startup? I think one of the, one of the underappreciated aspects of what the technology world has done is it's creating new markets. And I mean, a position Felix uh, built uh, earlier this year was in, was in Square. And um, reading the book about the founding of Square and the innovation stack was, it, it really talked about how, you know, the, the payment processors didn't want to deal with, uh, you know, the individual glassblower who was working at, you know, the, the local artisan market. And you know those 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 individual artisans were basically shut out of the modern payment system because the payment providers they made it way too hard for them to enter it, and as a result, they could only accept cash it uh, in these in these markets, and they lost out on a ton of revenue. But you know the the, the demand was there; um, it just wasn't accessible. And so when Square came in and and made a you know POS accessible for the individual glassblower. It created a whole new market um, that currently wasn't there, and it's interesting. Like you know, taking it to the next level with Square today, um, with their Cash App and their focus on cryptocurrency. I mean, there's in the U.S. right now, there's there's 12% of the U.S. populations un, unbanked. I think it is, and you know, imagine being not having a bank account in a world of COVID where you need to tap your credit card to pay, and you're just you're shut out of society. So. You know, what's interesting is, you know, their square is with their cash app and it's having the ability to bring this 12% of the unbanked population, which is, you know, an, an, an underprivileged part of the population. Um, it allows them to bring them into the mainstream um, and 
you know, could be a wonderful outcome um, for, you know, equality right across, right around the world. It's, so it's, you know, seeing, having these new TAMs, which they're in, invisible TAMs that people don't know about today, which, you know, because technology uh, makes things more accessible, actually opens up these markets. So I think if you would have, if we would have had this conversation 15 years ago, um, and we would have said, here's what the valuation of these companies are going to be, we we, we would have probably had the exact same discussion where it's like, well, that's greater than the, the entire TAM. And, and now we're probably saying that, well, you know, there's still a lot of room to grow in the TAM, but, you know, there's, there's all these other factors at play now. So I think, I think people underestimate how the TAM grows over time. Yeah, payments is a great example. And I, I think you make a really good point. Um, <clears throat> you know, when I started with PayPal, Dan Schulman had just become CEO. They were still in the belly of eBay about to get their own wings. And he's like, I see our competitor is cash, right? At the end of the day, we're competing with cash. We're not competing with anything else. We're trying to digitize payments and we want to get that going. And then the second layer to his story was that um, the entire financial system is wrought with very high fees, especially for underbanked populations. And if you could find those areas where fees are exceptionally high and you could use the scale and the fixed cost structure of technology to drive those costs down, you can make a way more inclusive financial system that gives access to way more people. So you grow the TAM in that way. And I find that to be like really compelling and interesting, have invested behind that in PayPal, which I still own, and Square, which I don't still own, unfortunately, regrettably. Um, but then, you know, like, okay, Roku, I said similar situations with the TAM appearing to be much bigger, but then you have the problem of what Phil talked about before, the wolf in sheep's clothing, where there are these companies who, you know, very, I think they know what they're doing. I don't want to single out the one company who I think has done it most egregiously just yet. Um, but maybe, maybe one of these days I'll single them out. But, you know, like, there's some companies out there that knowingly put out a TAM that there's no way they could, you know, you know, they, they should probably distinguish with like a SAM, like a serviceable addressable market, not like some sort of high in the sky, like we'll never capture this. And, you know, really what they're trying to do is get people to disanchor from the actual underlying performance of the business and pencil out five years if they capture, you know, X percent, it's worth, you know, Y dollars and get you to be lazy as an analyst. And, and I definitely think uh, that's one of our challenges, right? That's, I think that's one of the hardest things to do in our shoes, especially as these companies are growing quite swiftly, where we don't exactly know what duration of growth to underwrite to, where, you know, do they pull forward three years of growth or do they pull forward a decade of growth? And how do they comp this year going into next year? Like all these things are very much top of mind right now. That's like an hour, another hour-long podcast right there, Elliot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I can kind of keep going with that. It's it's really you know like it's it, it's quite an interesting, challenging juncture. But that's always what makes it fun, right? That, that's what gives us a job too uh, to think about these yeah. things. Um, but then I guess one of the things that we've almost ignored on the other side is: have there been some sectors where valuations have gotten so compressed, where the expectation of change is so great? toward the direction of technology, but there's still something underlying strong. Like, do, do you look at some of those areas as well these days? Uh, I mean, we're always trying to find them. Um, I, I mean, nothing really comes to mind right away. 
Um, but I did want to follow up on your point on, you know, how much demand did we just pull forward? And I think one thing that's really interesting to look at is, you know, kind of JD um, and, and Alibaba in, in China in coming out of 2003 with SARS there, because, you know, they had a similar shutdown um, with SARS in 2003 um, to what we saw uh, globally this year or last year, sorry. And you know, some, there's some really interesting data about how consumer behavior had changed um, and the proliferation of, of, of online shopping and um, B2B software. So there's, there, there's some really good data points out there already when you kind of look back at what happened in, in China in, in the mid-2000s. And I recognize that you know, it, it was a different setup because you know, here we are already in an internet-enabled world, world in North America and, and and Europe, but you know there there are some lessons we can we can learn from that period of time, which I which I, I think can help clarify our uh, our thinking on how the how the cash flows have been pulled forward in in some of these industries um, in the companies we traditionally follow here here in North America. Yeah, I was going to say I really like the comment, and I totally agree. I mean, it, depending on which side of the debate. If there is such a debate, I mean, I think it's easy for people to get sucked into a us versus them, like techno optimist, techno utopian versus like the grumpy old man shouting at the wind, get off my lawn kind of thing. And I, that's obviously ridiculous and, and oversimplified. But I do think one thing that gets lost um, is that if technology is truly useful and truly good, it's not a zero sum game. And so technology was everything from a plow to, you know, a supercomputer, right? There's technology everywhere and it doesn't have to be, I mean, we often associate it in this day and age with something very specific, but that's not necessarily true. And so I do totally agree that, um, you know, the, the, the total market size of any sort of business and the economy writ large, I mean, that's what we rely on to drive productivity and economic growth is that expansion over time. And yeah, till it's probably, I mean, it's just the tricky part and the thing that I struggle with sometimes is, is just separating those winners and losers. And I think um, the probability distribution of those winners and losers is important and often lost in the shuffle. So, I, you know, do you have any, I don't know, Dave, do you think explicitly, like, do you draw out scenarios? Do you do a probability analysis when you're looking at a business? Or is it a little more simplified? Like, this is a good business with good unit economics, good management. We feel qualitatively comfortable that it's going to be bigger and more successful five years from now? Uh, we, we do both. So we, you know, we do our quantitative analysis, which is we run four scenarios, um, our bull, bear, um, and base case, and then a disaster scenario. And, uh, you know, a lot of times our base case will be what is private market value of the company. And we'll, we'll have a high probability or a, high probability weighting associated with that, but then understanding what are, what the bull case may be um, as well as the bear and assigned probabilities. And then on our qualitative overlay, um, exactly to your point, um, it's, you know, what, what is, you know, our, you know, our most predictive uh, qualitative metric we have is quality of the business. And I mean, we just simply go high, medium, low, and, you know, when we've, our, our, you know, our data over five years is whenever we invest in high quality businesses, um, you know, our, it adds alpha to our portfolios. 
you know, again, we're totally going back to the, the endpoint sensitivity of quality uh, growth companies have, have, have done really well recently. Um, but that's one one factor we will will overlay it with, um, as well as you know, inside ownership, founders. Um, you know, when you look at our portfolio with Square and Zillow and Stitch Fix, like all you know, founder-led companies, so really mission-driven uh, companies where a founder just really cares about the customer experience, but knows how to do it in a, in a way that makes money. Um, you could probably put Elliot on a Twitter rant right now. Um, cue the cue the cue the music on that one. Always um, ready. <laughs> we're shareholders too, Elliot. So I love it when you go on your Twitter rants. I totally agree. Yep, my co-investors, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, so in, there, there's a lot of qualitative aspects we look at: business quality, founders. Um, I Murray Stahl kind of coined them predictive attributes, um, things which. You know, are qualitative in nature, but quantitatively um, increase your probability of a of a good outcome in the business. Yeah, a lot of those attributes are quite interesting. I mean, you've seen a lot of companies have tremendous success with that today, um, and across regimes, right? So that's that's definitely a pretty pretty good truth to look at, even across like industries. One thing I wish we'd get away from is having to call a lot of these companies technology. Oh. Like, you know, Stitch Fix is selling clothes. <laughs> They're deploying technology to do it better. But like, at the end of the day, I, I think, you know, when I was approaching it early on, I, Stitch Fix is a whiff on my part. And I got too wrapped up in like thinking of LTV and, you know, what they look like more as a subscription company. And, you know, a friend was like, why don't you think of them a little more like you would Nord, like, like why would you approach Nordstrom without doing an LTV and try to like build a DCF and thinking about like what they could do as a business. Um, and I do think there's definitely this convergence of worlds where you look at like a company, a company like Walmart, they're actually doing pretty well in the tech side or even target, right? They're doing really well in e-com. So in tech world, they're, they're like doing all right. And if you were to strip out just their performance in e-com, it would look pretty impressive, but not many people are willing to think or underwrite them in that way. Um, maybe, maybe it's really just, you know, it, it, it would do investing a favor if we got away with the tech moniker and maybe some of the halo goes away from some companies, but kind of level the playing field. How do you approach that problem? Now you want me to go on a rant, don't you? Um, it, it, it's challenging. I mean, we, you know, there's been points of time where we're 60% technology in our portfolio and, and people get freaked out. Like, holy smokes, you have so much technology risk. And, um, and to your point, we don't actually look at it that way. We, you know, the, where your exposures are and what companies are, really it's, it's what their product is and who are their customers. Um, you know, who are they? Who are they selling to and what do they do? And, you know, I, Stitch Fix is a great example. I mean, they they sell clothes and they've figured out a, a really novel way of, of doing it in an efficient way and in a way that customers really like. I mean, in, increase, it improves the customer's experience dramatically. And so I, I you're right. I mean, you, you do have to benchmark them against uh, a Nordstrom's or another clothing retailer. and like, you know, people look at kind of, you know, Amazon and is it a tech company? It's like, well, no, they're, they're just, they're an online marketplace and deliver stuff to your door 
basically day of, which is fantastic. Um, but I mean, Costco's doing pretty much the same thing. Walmart, Target, all these other companies are, you know, they're all kind of fighting in the, in the same time. And, you know, in the, in the early innings of, you know, tech adoption and proliferation, they were very distinct markets, but, you know, convergence is, is coming. And I, what we've seen in the last year is it, um, it's accelerating. And like, it was, it was really interesting watching the traditional retailers in, in March and April last year. Uh, you know, it's, you, you could see the ones that dramatically struggled um, to shift to an online model um, and, and, you know, and, and, and capture the, the growth opportunities that present themselves. And there were other companies that, you know, just took off like bandits because they were well positioned. And I mean, it, uh, so I think from, from kind of as my, as my, being, being an, uh, a business analyst geek and just loving this stuff, it was so fun getting these data points where we were always speculating, you know, which of these companies is, is doing a good job with their online platform. And, you know, Target wasn't on my radar list, um, but, you know, what, it, like, uh, what a great job they did. And now, you know, to your point, Ellie, you peel back the onion there, um, you know, they've got a great little business there that's growing nicely. Right, yeah, and I guess one of the keys is that they had the assets in place even before everything closed and the world changed, right? So there, there was a degree of foresight involved in it. They just couldn't find a way to steer their customers to that channel or acquire new customers in that channel versus some of the others. Um, and, you know, I think that's one of the things I think about a lot with COVID when we get to these conversations about like, are things stretched? Are they not? Like, will there be a kind of resumption of past normalcies after this all? It's like everything's, you know, we've kind of thrown a wrench into the entire system and you get to start certain things from a first principles approach and think about optimizing for where they should have been had we not been encumbered by our past. And that has consequences. Like there's no going back on a lot of these things. And the rubber band stretched really far and it makes sense that things are moving really far, really fast. And it makes sense that volatility is like a little elevated because like you said very early on, David, and I, I really liked that point about how, you know, like both tails uh, ha have a much higher probability right now. For, for better or worse. For better or worse. <laughs> yeah, it's the, the, the other, the, I mean, the other really interesting data point that comes out of these periods of time and right like we've got this heightened volatility and you know it's, it's because you know it, it's uncertainty and there's so much turmoil going on um but we you know we always try and figure out you know back to the kind of the, the founder ceos i mean not every company has a founder ceo but who are the really the forward thinking mission-driven ceos and you know you know when when they're able to pivot quickly like that, it demonstrates that they've actually were very forward thinking in a dealing dealing with the competitive landscape. So, you know, they were ready for this, um, but now the market's actually there for them. Um, so, you know, this is great because it gave us gave us a lot of data points on on management teams and you know how how they look at building their companies. And you know, you can't you know the 
you know, business models are being disrupted at a higher rate than we've ever seen. So if you've got a if you've got a management team that's just sitting there milking the cash cow all day long, um, you know, sooner or later the short sellers are going to show up at the door, um, and then you're going to be having an ugly conversation with yourself. Um, so it's it's been really uh, illuminating for us um, on who the who the management teams are we want to support long term. And I there was some there were some great conference calls where you know we we you know to have have a conference call or be on the company's quarterly conference call. And, you know, they, they, it'd be like a, because of the timing of financials, you know, you're talking end of March for the year end. And then they give guidance for Q1 and they're, they reiterate guidance on March 15th. And then, you know, a couple months later or a couple weeks later, they're, they're like, oh yeah, sorry, we missed guidance. It's like, <laughs> well, how, how disconnected from your business are you when you can't like, you like you're two weeks in and you're missing stuff. Like there's a CEO that really is spending way too much time, you know, on the beach or watching YouTube videos um, and not enough time talking to customers and talking to people that work at the company. So it was great. Twofold. You know, we got our, we got our list of CEOs. We probably want to support. And we got a list of CEOs um, that are now with our don't touch with a 10 foot pole list. I have a feeling Elliot and I might even be talking about the same company. <laughs> I'm going to ask him offline. I don't want to call anyone out um, publicly either. We'll, we'll stop from doing that. And we certainly are not in the business of making specific investment recommendations. But Dave, I'd, I'll put you on the spot and see if you want to call out any um, industry company executive uh, management teams more broadly that you think really do it the right way. I mean, you've, you've mentioned a few companies companies that, that you're obviously optimistic about. But again, don't feel compelled. I would probably punt on this if you turned around and asked me. So please don't feel obligated. But I do think it's interesting, given the work that you've done, if, if you, you know, it, it's not going to be able to prove be proven right or wrong for maybe five or 10 years, right? If you want to be so bold as to say that this company is going to pull a, a Netflix or an Amazon, like that's not a disprovable thing anytime soon. So um, I guess you have a little bit of air cover that way. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the, I, I I love waffling on questions like this. Um, the, you know, I, I think there's there's a lot of people out there, and you know, you can look at Bezos and you know, Mark Leonard at Constellation's done a great job. Um, so there's a lot of those exemplars out there, um, and. You know, hindsight capital is you know telling us we should own their stocks a long time ago. The you know we're spending our time trying to identify um, who those that next generation is. Um, so you know there, there's there's still a substantial level of risk. Um, so I'm I'm not sure if I feel totally comfortable. <laughs> no, I don't blame you. I would have I would have struggled to answer that too. I just wanted to see if you. If you had something that we hadn't already touched on that you wanted to call out for the future, it's not, frankly, it's almost more disturbing when people make bold pronouncements like, oh, yeah, I've definitely identified the next Jeff Bezos. His name is X. I'm like, all right, really? <laughs> no, okay. Yeah. Well, it, it, it actually, it does that CEO or entrepreneur a disservice as well because everybody does things their own way or differently. And they, they you know, the, the best CEOs are the ones that, you know, learn a little bit from a whole bunch of different people and incorporate that into their own best practice. And I think that's akin to how, you know, great investors are formed too. It's, you know, they have their own process and it's, 
it's learnings from multiple other investors they've they've they talked to or they've read about or they've followed or whatever the case may be. So um, we're all going to do it a little bit different. Maybe just one thing from me before we uh, wrap it up, Dave. Um, this notion that you know we are um, investors and not just business analysts. So um, you know it's it's great to be looking for these businesses all day long, and obviously uh, that's the that's the absolute core of uh, good investing over the long term. But at the same time, uh, you know there's a lot of things happening in the world. That could uh, be, you know, kind of like a tsunami coming at our uh, nicely built sandcastles here that we're talking about. I mean, um, how do you think about just the world in general as a portfolio manager um, rather than just a business analyst? Um, you know, I'll just throw out kind of this notion that we could see higher interest rates at some point and what it might mean for businesses where. A lot of the cash flows are, um, you know, deferred pretty far into the future. Yeah, I mean, there's there's always tsunamis on the horizon, um, and it. I mean, if you kind of the risk is that there's a tsunami that that wipes you out. Um, so, in you know, when when you when we're feeling good about ourselves our tendency is to make sure that we're we're being cautious about catastrophic risk um because i think that's when you can really get exposed with whether it's you know weaker business models or balance sheet risk so i think whenever we're kind of looking from an investment perspective looking at what's going on in the world today uh tying that back to the companies we're invested in um you know in, in periods of time like this it's you know it's probably better to play be a little bit jo- have Jacques Lemaire at the helm. Um, but so it's just making sure you, you're not getting wiped out if something bad does happen. But, you know, that being said, I mean, if you, you know, there's, there's always bumps in the road and, you know, we've got, you know, hundreds of years of financial data where stock markets go up and, you know, companies are going to come, come up with novel ways of uh, creating solutions and servicing customers. And I mean, I can't, what a massive stress test so many companies just went through last year and to come out the other side um, as growing successful companies really, you know, really demonstrates the robustness of of capitalism and and companies as a whole. Um, So it's a, you know, there's a great opportunity out there, um, you know, to... To, to look at the companies now, which I think are, you know, I'm not going to say anti-fragile, but, you know, kind of know how to pivot in these in these challenging times. Well said. Um, any uh, Anyone have any other thoughts? Uh, Phil, Elliot, anything else for Dave or uh, Dave, any, any concluding thoughts? That was great. This was a lot of fun. Thank you yeah, for pre- joining us, David. Pre- appreciate it. Yeah, thank you guys, and I, I really enjoyed your uh, your conversation on note taking a couple couple weeks back. And and uh, John, um, please let me know how your ongoing quest with uh, Rome goes, and um, maybe have like a MOI focused group on how we can optimize Rome because um, we're always looking at uh, yeah better notes and, and tying it all in. 
Thanks for that prompt, Dave. I'd love to figure it out myself. Um, I, I see people on Twitter kind of tweeting about some amazing things they're doing in Rome, and I'm just uh, trying to figure out how to do, you know, the two-way linking. <laughs> so, uh, so once I once I make some uh, progress there, I, I'll be happy to share. I'm, I'm totally being selfish. I, I've learned so much from John, from you and the MOI community over the years, John. So uh, I'm looking for one an, another thing I can learn here, which I'm uh, getting ready to dive into. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dave. This was a great pleasure. Uh, thanks, uh, Phil and Elliot, uh, for making it a great discussion. And thank you all for listening. Looking forward to uh, next week. Uh, until then, take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.